So we've been telling you about Walters for brunch the last few days, but did you know that Walters also is open for lunch? Monday through Friday, Walters opens at noon for lunch, midday baseball watching, and even the occasional European soccer match. So if you find yourself around the ballpark during the day, make sure you walk on over to Walters. Walters Outdoor Deck is the perfect place to be with friends before, during, and after the game. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Two on, two outs. 3-3 the score. Pitch to Turner. His line drive, base hit right center field. Rounding third, coming home is Hernandez. Pinch runner Gerardo Parra headed to third. He's in there standing. And the Nationals lead 4-3. Trey Turner drives in the go-ahead run. RBI number 47. And the Nationals are back in front here in the sixth inning. Now the 2-2 breaking ball hit in the air. Deep left field again. Way back. Going, going. And gone. Goodbye. Into the Marlins bullpen in left center field. Zoom goes Josh Bell with a pinch hit home run. And welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday, July 21st, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, for the first time in it felt like a long time, we had normalcy at Nationals Park. A normal baseball game, not the baseball pornography to which we had become accustomed. You know, 24-8, 18-1. No, 6-3 was the final on Tuesday night. The Nationals won on Tuesday night. Nats now have won three consecutive games to get to 45 and 49 on the season. The secret weapon was back in full effect. Daniel Hudson and Brad Hand were back in full effect. The Nationals' key batsmen were in full effect. Juan Soto, Trey Turner, Josh Bell, Ryan Zimmerman. All seemed well. All seemed normal, Mark, at Nationals Park on Tuesday night. We haven't been able to say that much lately. Yeah, I mean, it was still an eventful news day for those of us who cover the team because we got the GM finally for the first time in three months. We talked to Mike Rizzo this afternoon before the game, and I know we're going to get to all that. So there was some stuff there, and... There was a little bit of a scare late in the game when Alcides Escobar got hit by a pitch. We'll get to that also, but it's good news. He doesn't appear to be seriously injured, so that was good. But as far as the game itself, yeah, that was a nice, crisp, clean game. Aside from one bad inning from Austin Voth, everything else went exactly according to plan. And they got the five scoreless from Paolo Espino. They got clutch hits. That was a 2019-style offensive game from the Nats. Two out hits with runners in scoring position. It was fantastic from their biggest name guys. And then the big relievers at the back end closed it out, Finnegan, Hudson, and Hand. 
And so that made for a really nice and tidy victory and just exactly what they need to do against an inferior opponent like the Marlins. Yeah, uh, Nationals offense remains in a very good place. Six runs, 11 hits, four walks, four of 11 with runners in scoring position. You were not facing Ross Detweiler on Tuesday night. Trevor Rogers is having a really good season. And, you know, it's not like the Nats filleted Rogers, but they got him out of the game after five innings. There's a lot to like right now with the way things are going offensively for the Nats. Well, you made mention of it. Alcides Escobar getting hit by a pitch late in the game by Richard Blyer, who ended up getting ejected for reasons we're still not quite sure. I don't know if you gained any more insight into that, but that did not look nice, what happened to Alcides Escobar. I guess it was like the forearm, the wrist. Uh, What was said about his situation after the game? Yeah, it was his wrist, and they were worried. I mean, you could see he was in some serious pain and didn't even attempt to go to first base. But the good news is the x-rays were negative. And the 1-2 pitch. Inside, and Escobar is hit, and down he goes. He got hit on the arm, the right-hand wrist area, and he is down in a heap around home plate. Jorge Alfaro wants them to ask to see if he swung at the pitch. It's a contusion. It's swollen up pretty good, so he's going to be day-to-day, probably miss a couple days, I would imagine. But they don't believe there's any reason to think that he's going to be out for any length of time. And, I mean, God, right now, if they were to lose him, I I can't believe we're saying this, but this team can't afford to lose Alcides Escobar. They have no other infielders to get by right now. So that would be catching a huge break, as it were, if it turns out that he is all right. But, you know, maybe it will. And I know we're going to get to this, but maybe it'll help force the issue a little bit with Mike Rizzo to say we need some help. They, especially on the infield, they do need help because the depth has been tested here and um, they're one injury away from being in real trouble. So the Nationals did have a bunch of extra base hits on Tuesday night, only though had the one home run and did a lot of damage in like station by station fashion. It was really interesting to see the Nats do as they ended up doing. You know, the Nats in this game led to nothing through five innings. Then came the Austin Voth inning, him giving up three runs in the top of the six. But the Nats did such a nice job, Mark, of answering right back with three runs in the bottom of the six. All three runs scoring with two outs. And then came that nice insurance run, the Josh Bell pinch hit homer in the bottom of the eighth inning. It's really good to see this right now. The Nats can do you offensively in a lot of different ways. Like, yes, the Nats can play long ball, but the ability to play, you know, more of like a traditional National League style of offensive baseball. I thought we saw that in a lot of ways on Tuesday night. Yeah, it's funny. Trey Turner afterwards was talking about how he thought this is what they were going to be all along as a lineup. He didn't necessarily think they were going to be a big home run team, you know, a few here and there. And the funny thing is, is for the last, you know, month or so, they have been living and dying with the home run. And I thought this was a really nice display of two out clutch hitting, really a quality that the championship team had in 2019. And you saw it from Zimmerman. That was a great at bat. You saw it even from Victor Robles early on for the first run. That was a two out RBI single. You saw it obviously from Trey Turner and Juan Soto, who just is locked in right now. When he makes contact, it is loud every single time. So that was big. And also, it wasn't loud contact, but it was a key at bat in this game from Yadiel Hernandez. And it came off a lefty. And at the moment, as he comes up to pinch hit, I didn't love it, but I knew they didn't have alternatives. In this game, they only had three left-handed backup outfielders on their bench, plus Josh Bell, the switch hitting first baseman who you knew Davey was going to want to save. And so against Blyer, a lefty, he pretty much had to put a lefty up there. And he put Yadiel and he got behind the count 0-2 and he fought his way back and he fought off a tough pitch and he got it into left field for a hit. Yadiel Hernandez ties the game with a blue hit to left. The Nationals three and the Marlins three. Clutch hit for pinch hitter Yadiel Hernandez. 
if he's going to stick up here and actually be a regular contributor as a major league pinch hitter, he's going to have to be able to do more of that. And so that was a really encouraging at bat for him on a night where they had a lot of really encouraging at bats. Yeah, Yadiel, pinch hitting is not easy as we know, and he can do it. You know, he did it in the 18-1 win on Monday night. That six-run seventh inning included Yadiel with a pinch, went out RBI single on a one-two pitch. But to your point about the two-out hitting and just the overall good approaches at the plate, man, did you see that on Tuesday night? Like with Juan Soto. So Juan Soto in the game, one for three with a single and two walks. Everything he did came with two outs. He had a two-out five-pitch walk, bottom of the first, two-out five-pitch walk, bottom of the third, and then the ribby single came with two outs, came on a one-two pitch, and came on a ball that he hit to left center field, put the Nats up 5-3 in that three-run six inning. Trey Turner on Tuesday night, two for five, two singles. Each single, though, an opposite field single. One out opposite field single to right field on an 0-2 pitch in the Nats' one-run fifth. A go-ahead two-out first pitch opposite field RBI single to right field for a 4-3 Nats lead in that three-run sixth inning. Ryan Zimmerman, his big hit on the night. As Zim started on Tuesday night, the big double, the two-out ribby double to center field on an 0-2 pitch. Swing and a belt, right center field. Back goes Marte again, way back. Can't get this one. Over his head, one up off the wall. Turner speeding around third. He will score on a booming double to right center for Ryan Zimmerman. In the bottom of the fifth inning, just like a lot of things to really like in terms of the particulars of these plate appearances. And then the Josh Bell homer, it wasn't quite the moonshot that we saw in the previous game, but that still was a pretty healthy home run that Josh Bell ended up swatting. So he's now homered in back-to-back games. Pinch leadoff homer to left field to put the Nats up 6-3. And Tres Barrera, a.k.a. Mike Piazza, continues to <laughs> rake as well. Two doubles for Tres Barrera in this game. Two out ground rule double to right field, bottom of the fourth. One out double in the Nats, three runs, six inning. I know the sample size is small, but over 29 plate appearances, Tres Barrera has an OPS of 972. Another one of these guys who we can say is doing a really good job in being called upon in an unusual circumstance here. And is showing that he deserves to play. And you saw it the third straight night that he caught, not Rene Rivera. And so again, until Alex Avila comes back and it still hasn't happened yet, and Jan Gomes, who's a little farther off, I think we're going to see more of Tres Barrera. He has done a nice job. He knows the pitching staff. They all have complimented him, including Paolo Espino in this game. And I mean, he's coming through in big spots with hits. That's three extra base hits in the last two nights from a guy who really we didn't think in those terms as someone who can do that. So that was big. And the Josh Bell homer, another one right-handed off a lefty, which is another great sign because that was not his strong side of the plate. And it's all the more reason to think that we may be getting closer to the day where he is going to play in left field with Zimmerman at first. He's been working out there every afternoon on this homestand. They're trying to get him prepared for the possibility of it. And if he keeps showing that he can hit like that and Zim keeps hitting, I do think Davey's going to find a matchup. I don't know what it'll be, but he's going to find a matchup that he thinks makes sense to have both those guys in the lineup and then uh, hold your breath and hope that Josh Bell doesn't hurt you in left field. I don't know, man. I mean, look, Davey's got a Midas touch with a lot of things. He knows better than we do. I just wonder about that. Josh Bell in left field sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, who knows? But, you know, left field, people should not just take that position for granted. It's not always easy to play, you know, caroms off the wall, judging fly balls as they slice away from you. You know, a ball is hitting the shallow left. Do you charge in? Do you play it back? You know, there are all kinds of things that can happen. We've seen Josh Harrison have some issues in left field. And that's a guy who has experience playing left field. I know Bell has done it, but 
I don't know. I, I just feel like this could be something we look back upon and say, what were they thinking? putting Josh Bell in left field, but he's hitting like crazy. There's no doubt about that. And I mentioned Josh Harrison. He was a starting left fielder on Tuesday night. Another extra base hit. You know, Josh Harrison rather quietly is on a nice little run here over these last few games, but uh, first pitch leadoff double in that Nationals one run second inning. Uh, so nice to see that with this Nationals offense, which, you know, Mark, I know you brought it up the other, the other day on the show. Kyle Schwarber's out. They're hitting. You could argue this is the best they've been this season in terms of like a sustained run of offense, like game in, game out. You know, it's no longer a big deal when the Nats score more than four runs. Remember for the longest time, it was like they never score more than two or three runs game in, game out. That feels like a long time ago now. Every night now, we're expecting, you know, four, five, six, seven runs from the Nationals. It does, and it makes you, you know, realize that when Schwarber comes back, they might really have something going Yeah. Uh, at that point. I can't say I saw it happening like this. When he went down, you thought, oh boy, they're going to be in trouble for at least a while. And no, that has not been the case at all. But you know what? It's the big name guys who are stepping up. Turner, Soto, Bell, Zimmerman. I know they're getting contributions from others who we weren't necessarily expecting it from, but ultimately those big names are going to be the ones that get the job done. And they have stepped up big time. And we said all along, if Soto gets hot, he's good enough to carry them and he's getting help. It's not just him, but he is playing a huge role in what they've done coming out of the all-star break. And he is shuffling like crazy. And I always felt that way. When the shuffling is back, Soto is back. Now, the crotch grabbing isn't necessarily back. I don't know what it's going to take for that to come back. Maybe that never comes back. He is Soto shuffling on a nightly basis, multiple times per night, which tells you, I think, all we need to know about what he's doing right now. Here it comes. Swinging a shot into left center field, base hit. Parra will score. Turner on his way to third. The throw into second. And Turner dives in safely with no play over there. Juan Soto makes it 5-3 Nationals. A sharp ground ball single against the shift in the left center. RBI 54. And Soto staying red hot here in the second half. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflicts. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of legal headhunters working for you, and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a Rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Swing a ground ball to short, fielded by Turner. His throw on to Zimmerman in plenty of time to get a somewhat upset. Miguel Rojas in the side is retired. A 1-2-3 inning. There you have it, eight straight. Ten of the last 11 retired by Espino. On this program, on this podcast, the Nats Chat Podcast, the thing we love the most about the National 6-3 win over the Marlins at Nationals Park on Tuesday night was the return of the secret weapon. The secret weapon had not been himself lately. Why? We're not quite sure. I guess even secret weapons can be off every so often, but the secret weapon was back to being a secret weapon on Tuesday night. Paolo Espino, very good in his outing. Five scoreless innings. And it was a typical Paolo Espino outing. You know, three strikeouts, but no walks. Only gives up four hits, a double and three singles. Throws a bunch of strikes, 49 strikes, versus 24 balls. Now, he did put some runners on base in the early goings. That is true. It's not like he was giving you a bunch of clean innings over the first, say, three innings. But ultimately, scoreless frames. Paolo Espino gets back to being the guy who we saw, remember, make that great spot start outing and that win over the Mets at Nats Park back on June 28th. Five scoreless innings in that game. Since that game, three appearances, nine runs, 10 and a third innings. Paolo Espino, the carriage had morphed back into a pumpkin But the secret weapon was back out there and doing well on Tuesday night. And like you said, this was just sort of classic Paolo Espino, throwing strikes, not walking anybody, making them beat you. He said he went into this and was determined to attack the strike zone, not nibble around. I think that's where he got into trouble. Remember the Dodgers game? He actually got a little spooked out by their lineup and started nibbling around the zone, didn't trust his ability just to get guys out with his stuff. And I think he sort of reminded himself, yes. I can do this. I've had some success now at this level. Now, he's facing a, a far different lineup in the Marlins than he was facing with the Dodgers, but that's fine. Just like John Lester on Monday night, make them beat you. Don't give them free passes. And he went out and did a great job of that. Finished strong, retired eight in a row. And, you know, he gets to the fifth and he's at 73 pitches. And I know a lot of fans, because I was hearing it from him on Twitter, were questioning why he came out of the game after five. Well, look, he threw 51 pitches on Friday night in relief. So that's three days rest coming back, 73. He hasn't thrown more than 75 yet this season. They're going to be careful with him that he just has not been really built up like a true starter. And to be honest, I don't even think they went into this game expecting more than five. I think Davey's ideal plan was exactly what happened. Five from Palo and then give it to your relievers who were all fresh because they didn't have to pitch on Monday. Now, the wrinkle in all that was that Austin Voth coughed up the lead in a span of three batters in the sixth inning. Thankfully, they came back, retook the lead, and then Finnegan, uh, Hudson, and Hand closed it out. But Palo Spino's not a six, seven inning pitcher, at least not right now. They are thrilled to get five quality innings out of him, and that is fine. And he was fine with it. That's his role on this team, and he did it to perfection in this game. 
Yeah, we know too much now about the third time through the order penalty to where it shouldn't be a surprise anymore when guys get yanked after, say, five innings. Like, yes, it would be lovely if everyone could go eight innings, but that's just not the way a lot of guys are. And so unless you're of a special mold, once you're twice through the lineup, you start saying, okay, when's the right guy to pull this guy? And that doesn't mean that you automatically yank the guy, but you got to be thinking in those terms. I mean, we see Davey do it with a lot of different guys. So 100%. Davey made the right call on that. And the onus was on the bullpen to get the job done. Three-fourths of the relievers who were utilized were terrific. I mean, Kyle Finnegan looked great, perfect top of the seventh. Daniel Hudson looked excellent, perfect top of the eighth. Two strikeouts. And how about those strikeouts? Starling Marte and Adam Duvall on a combined seven pitches for the last two outs. And then Brad Hand tossed a perfect top of the ninth. The problem, like you said, was Austin Voth. And that unraveled quickly. That was, I think, the particularly painful aspect of Voth's outing is how quickly this all went down. Nats are up 2 nothing to begin the top of the sixth. And then Voth is in there and he proceeds to allow the first three guys to reach base. Lead off seven pitch walk of Isan Diaz. Despite, by the way, Diaz having it down at 1.12 then a single by Marte, and then the big blow, the three-run homer by Duvall. Then both got three straight outs. You were like, where was that, you know, five minutes ago here? But he gives up those three runs, and it changes the way you view the game. But the Nats, to their credit, strike right back in the bottom of that sixth inning. Yeah, it was real quick. And I know the home runs, what everyone's going to, you know, focus on, and, and obviously that was the big blow. But the leadoff walk, we talked about it the other night, how many relievers are coming in and walking the very first batter. You can't do that. You have a 2 nothing lead. You're taking over. You're facing a weak-hitting number two hitter. Ison Diaz is not a threat. But the two guys behind him are Marte and Duvall. Don't let them come up with runners on base. Make Diaz beat you. And he didn't do that. And it just set a bad tone for that entire inning. And like I said, thankfully, they strung together the hits after that. And then the rest of the bullpen was good. But this is why with both, like, you know, we see moments that you think, okay, he looks like he could be a really good setup man for them. But he doesn't have a lot of experience in high leverage spots, and we're seeing that there's still some inconsistency there from outing to outing. He is far from a finished product yet, and it's among the reasons that I still feel like one of the things they need before July 30th is another quality reliever, somebody to help set up. They don't need a big name at the back end. They just need a quality guy to help out in the seventh inning kind of thing and help get the ball to Hudson in hand because they're asking guys like Finnegan and Voth, who they have their abilities and sometimes they look great, but they're not really consistent. They don't have the experience in those spots that you just feel like you trust them every time. Yeah, I'm going to start calling him Austin Suero because he and Wander <laughs> have some real similarities. Sometimes they look really good and they look good often enough to kind of seduce you into thinking that they're good enough. And sometimes they are, but then they'll just cough it up and they'll struggle. And we certainly saw that with both in the game on Tuesday night. <laughs> Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season. For Saison and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. 
Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park. And make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Treat the whole family to a fun night of baseball with the Bethesda Big Train at Shirley Povich Field. Big Train Baseball is the perfect mix of small-town charm and big-league talent right here in Bethesda's Cabin John Regional Park. Visit BigTrain.org forward slash tickets to reserve your seats for tonight's game and all other home games throughout July. We'll attack the trade deadline uh, you know, like we always do. We'll be aggressive uh, in, in whatever we do. This year it'll be a little bit different because of uh, you know where we're at in the standings. And I think we're gonna we're kind of uh, go go by a, a dual path. You know, try and uh, try and maximize our, uh, you know, our our place in the standings wherever that is. We're, you know, whenever we make that decision. Well, you mentioned a potential move or moves by Mike Rizzo. Mike Rizzo spoke to reporters on Tuesday for the first time in a long time. You have to go back to April. For the last time, Mike Rizzo took questions from reporters. Now, he speaks on the radio every week, so it's not like he's been a total recluse. But it'd been a while since Mike Rizzo had spoken openly to multiple reporters in a setting the likes of which we had on display on Tuesday. It was good to hear from Mike. You know, Mike's a smart guy. You always learn stuff listening to him. And he spoke and he touched on a number of topics. We'll get to the trade deadline momentarily. But I think the headline item from Mike Rizzo's session with you guys is what he had to say about the Starling Castro situation. So as everyone listening knows, the Nats on Friday announcing that Castro has been placed on administrative leave by Major League Baseball under the joint MLB-MLBPA domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse policy. There is a domestic violence allegation against Castro. The specifics of the incident we still do not know, but Rizzo spoke on Tuesday, and he came out very forcefully against, of course, not just domestic violence, But essentially against Castro, Mike Rizzo on Tuesday sounded exactly as Davey Martinez sounded on Friday when Davey came out forcefully against domestic violence, but also did not pledge any support to Castro. Davey saying that he had nothing to say to Castro until the process was complete. Mark, I know you had some back and forth with Rizzo. He said it. I'm not planning on having Starling Castro back on the team. Rizzo also got into how much he hated when he found out about this, how angry he was. Rizzo also got into admitting that he failed in his vetting of Castro prior to signing him as a free agent in the 2019-2020 offseason. Look, no one is going to come out and say anything with certainty. It seems to me, though, that Davey and Mike have their minds made up about not just Castro's future with the team, but also Castro's guilt here. This isn't a situation where they're like, well, let's see the process play out. They either suspect some things or they know some things. And they believe Castro is guilty of what he's been accused of. Yeah, or at minimum, they have every reason to believe that there's not going to be resolution before the season is over, which would, you know, allow them to be able to say that they don't expect him to come back. But no, the tone of what they both said, and I think Rizzo even took it a step beyond what David did the other day. It was very forceful and saying that he's confident that Starlin Castro is not going to play for this team again. And like you said, admitted something that he doesn't often do, admitted that they failed in their research on him. He said they did a lot of research on him. They have people on the staff who had been with him in the past in Chicago. They obviously knew about the previous sexual assault allegation against him from 2011 that was dropped when there was not a, enough evidence 
for the police to charge him, but they knew that was on his record and they feel like they did not do as good a job as they should have, is what Rizzo is saying. That's a pretty abrupt thing to do for a guy who was hitting really well, remember, before this all happened. For Rizzo to admit a mistake like that is pretty striking. And I think you're seeing a real organization-wide tone about how they feel about all issues pertaining to the treatment of women. And we've seen other teams across baseball, other teams across sports, not have as strong a tone as the Nationals have. And I think they should be commended for the way they have handled that because there are other teams who have not gone nearly as far as they have in what they've said publicly. Yeah, and I think the Nationals probably have learned from the mistakes made by some of these other teams who have botched these situations, like the Houston Astros a few years ago, like you could argue the New York Mets a few months ago. So good on the Nats for having picked up on that. But, you know, I just am like, okay, thinking about this logically, you always will at least hear a team say, well, you know, this guy's a good guy or the guy, the, you know, or, or something like the Starling Castro I know wouldn't do this, something like this, you know, like even something like that, where you leave it ambiguous enough to where if he is guilty, you didn't say that he wasn't guilty. You're just saying the Castro, you know, wouldn't do this. And instead they're like, uh, no, that guy's done. You know, I, I have nothing to say to that guy. Like it, it really reeks of they've learned some things. They've been told some things. They have their minds made up about this, which, you know, is, is really striking. Here's something else I was thinking about. So Castro has not said anything publicly since he got accused. Am I correct in saying that? I have not seen anything from him, no. Okay. So let's just think about this logically. If you got accused of something as terrible as domestic violence and you were innocent, would you not be screaming your innocence from the mountaintops? Yeah, or having someone on your behalf do it for you. Right. And there has not been that. Yes. Trevor Bauer got accused. And whether you think he's innocent or not, within seconds, a statement was put out from his camp saying, no, 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 no. He's not guilty. This was consensual. This woman wanted him to do what he did, you know, et cetera. Now, again, whether he's telling the truth or not, other people can figure that out. But at least Bauer, you could argue, has acted like someone who might be innocent. The silence speaks volumes in this, that Castro, Camp Castro, has said nothing about this incident. I think that's notable. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, it's not entirely an apples to apples uh, comparison, but you would think that somebody, whether it was Starlin himself whether it was his representation, whether it was a teammate or a former teammate, somebody else in the game speaking up on his behalf. Now, maybe we'll still get to that. Maybe, you know, everybody has said, OK, as long as this is under investigation, we're not going to comment on it. And, you know, let's see what MLB says. Uh, obviously, they have not completed the investigation. Like I mentioned the other day when this when this broke, they tend to take a long time to resolve these things. So some of the Nationals, you know, strong statements against him may have to do with the fact that they know that this thing isn't going to be resolved before the season's over, and he's going to be a free agent anyways. So even if at some point in the offseason he's exonerated, the Nationals can say, well, they don't have to deal with it anymore, and they weren't planning to re-sign him on top of that. So that may be some of it. But I do think it's striking the way they've approached this. They don't have to do it the way they are, but they've chosen to do it the way they are, and I think there's a message behind that. Yeah, MLB has really made it a point to be better with issues like domestic violence because I think of the way some of these other things have gone down. You know, it, it's, it's almost ironic. Also on Tuesday was this first ever all-female broadcast for the Orioles. You know, like this is a thing now of MLB's trying to be better in this regard. MLB should be better in this regard. And the Nationals are perhaps uh, leading the way or at least acting as leaders uh, in this movement, which is a good thing and an admirable thing. So that was the not-so-fun stuff from Mike Rizzo's session with you guys. The fun stuff, though, was Mike Rizzo, I thought speaking fairly openly, 
about the looming trade deadline. So MLB's trade deadline this year is going to be on July 30th as opposed to July 31st. We're done, by the way, with non-waiver deadline and waiver deadline. There's only one deadline now, which is the right way to do this. So Friday, July 30th, 4 p.m. Eastern is the trade deadline. Rizzo, it kind of just was kind of dropped into his lap of, hey, you know, how do you feel about the season? And then he himself kind of took it upon himself to start talking about the deadline, which I thought was interesting. And he multiple times talked about the Nats taking a dual path and preparing to maybe buy or maybe sell. And I have to tell you, I loved hearing that from Rizzo. I think that's 100% the way to play this. He didn't do the thing of, there's no way we won't be sellers. He did the thing of, look, we're not planning on being sellers, but we're going to kind of set up camp in both shops, and we'll kind of see where things go over the next few weeks here. I think that's exactly the way to play this if you're Rizzo. Yeah, I thought it was more forthcoming than he usually is going into a trade deadline. He's often pretty vague about what they might be doing or not doing or what they're thinking. He said, in addition to the fact that, hey, we might decide we're buyers, we might decide we're sellers, he pretty much said that they're not going to decide anything until they get down to the final day or two and put the onus on his team now to win over the next week to force the issue and convince him and convince ownership that they should be buyers. And, you know, he he said he believes that they will. He believes in his team and thinks they're going to go on a streak here and force that issue. But he's also acknowledging that if it doesn't happen, he would be willing to look into selling. And so he's going to prepare for that possibility just in case. So yeah, I did think it was more forthcoming than we usually heard from him. And I think it was the right things that he said. I don't think you can, even as we tape this on July 20th, I don't think we can say for certain which way the Nats should go. And I do think the next week is going to determine which way they go. They picked up a game on the Mets on Tuesday. The Mets lost. So they're five back as we tape this. And if they can get that to four or three by the time uh, July 30th rolls around, that's going to put some pressure on Rizzo to try to do something. Yeah, no question. Rizzo did not dismiss trading Max Scherzer, which I thought was interesting. Again, I mean, he didn't say, hey, we're looking to trade Max, but he also didn't just completely wipe it off the table, which I thought was the right way to deal with that. And he said, and you know, I know people say things, so you know, who knows how true this is, but he said, whatever we do, we're going to do it aggressively. And I think that is totally the way to be thinking. Being sort of namby-pamby and having one foot in, one foot out is like the worst thing you can do. If you're going to buy, then they need to buy and they need to get someone or some ones who are going to really help the Nats get to say 90, 90 plus wins and be a real playoff team. And if they're going to sell, then they need to sell all of their guys on expiring contracts and get what they can for those guys. It does no good to, you know, not do anything or sell one guy, but not some other guy. Like what the Nats did in 2018 to me is like the worst thing you can do, where they initially do nothing. And then they decide a few weeks later in August of that year to start selling guys post a non-waiver deadline for pennies on the dollar, right? That's when they traded away like Gio Gonzalez and Daniel Murphy and Matt Adams. And it was like, if you're willing to trade them in August, why don't you trade them a few weeks earlier? They, of course, didn't trade away Bryce Harper when Rizzo had a deal on the table with the Astros. The deal got nixed by the Learner Ownership Group. So it's like, I hope at least some lessons have been learned from that offseason. If you're going to buy, more power to you. But if you're going to sell, sell hard, sell aggressive, and be committed to doing that. Whatever you do, go full force in that direction. Rizzo said they would do that. And if he means that, I think that's very encouraging. Well, let's see if he actually means it, if they follow through with it. Because I do think there is a scenario, maybe not a likely scenario, but a scenario where they're still in this middle ground and they've gained a little bit, but they're still kind on the fringes of the race, but not all the way back in, but also don't have a complete collapse over these two weeks. And ownership is saying, 
And I don't know if we want to go, you know, spend and add to payroll and start approaching the luxury tax. And Rizzo is saying, well, I don't know if I really want to trade away one of my prospects to try to get somebody who may or may not ultimately help us. Like, I don't think it's impossible to believe that they would do nothing at the deadline. I don't think that's the likeliest scenario. I think it's more likely they either buy or sell. And I, and I honestly think the buying scenario is more likely than the selling scenario. I think they really would have to crater in the next week to find themselves in that position. And for that to happen, they'd have to be losing games to the Marlins and the Orioles and then the Phillies. So I don't know that that's you know, likely to happen. I would guess that some attempt at buying is the most likely scenario. But I also don't want people to think this means they're all in on Chris Bryant, that they're going to trade away any prospects they have. This may be a smaller buy than that, and it may not even be anything. Let's see where they stand on July 29th and July 30th, you know, before we decide that. But I like what he said on Tuesday. Now let's see if they follow through with it. Yeah. By the way, with Chris Bryant, I know his name comes up all the time. Chris Bryant was a superstar his first three years. He's not been that player for years now. Now, that's not to say that he's a bad player. But I think people still view Chris Bryant as the guy on the 2016 Cubs. He hasn't been that guy in a while. He's dealt with injury issues. There's obviously a major contractual scenario you'd have to deal with with Chris Bryant. Oh, by the way, next season is his age 30 season. You know, it's not like he's 24 anymore. I'm not one of these people who's all in love with the Nats trading for Chris Bryant. I I don't see this as some like panacea for fixing all the ills for the Washington Nationals. Yeah, I get what you're saying. He was an all-star this year, so he's, he's had a better bounce-back season. And I think the reason that he's so attractive to a lot of people, and not just the Nats, but other teams as well, is the versatility. I mean, he has played a bunch of different positions this year because the Cubs have needed him to. And, and hey, guess what the Nationals need right now? Somebody who can play third base, somebody who can play left field, maybe even center field in certain scenarios. So he would make a lot of sense, I think, for them. But at what price, of course? How much are you going to give up? for someone like that, who I think, honestly, they would look at as a rental. I don't think they'd be, you know, if it all works out, maybe you try to re-sign him, but I don't think they make that trade and try to immediately sign him to an extension, anything like that. I think it would be a rental and knowing that maybe they wouldn't give up as much for him. So I don't know where it's going to go. I still feel like it's a second tier kind of infielder, third baseman, or even second baseman, maybe another right-handed outfield bat. I think there's some bullpen help they could look for. I don't think they're going to go with the rotation because it just costs too much to do that. So this may be more of a small pieces to help fortify what they already have and then hope that the returning injured players are really their big acquisitions that get them over the hump the rest of the season. Yeah, it'll be interesting, too, to see who they trade from the farm system, because as we've discussed, it's not a very attractive system. I mean, who are they going to get? Who who are other teams lusting after in this farm system who the Nats are willing to part ways with, right? You're not trading Cade Cavalli. You're not trading Jackson Rutledge. So it's like, okay, now who? So I think that'll be interesting to follow as well. Game three against the Marlins at Nationals Park, Wednesday night at 7.05 as the Nats try for a three-game sweep. Marlins are throwing another good starter, Sandy Alcantara, 20 starts this season, ERA at 3.23. The Nats are starting Eric Fetty and Fetty needs to have a good start here. He has struggled to varying degrees in each of his three starts since coming off the 10-day injured list. And his last start was his ugliest start, the 24-8 loss to the Padres at Nats Park on Friday night. Fetty in that game, six runs in one and a third innings. He threw 29 strikes versus 28 balls in the game. This has been disheartening here. And 
it doesn't mean that Fetty and the success that he had earlier this season was like a total mirage, but that had been such a nice aspect of this season, the rise of Eric Fetty and maybe the blossoming of Eric Fetty. And he's kind of regressed back to the pre-2021 Eric Fetty over these last three starts. I think it's an important one for him. He's facing, as we've seen, a weaker lineup, a lineup that, you know, Lester and Espino just proved you can beat if you throw strikes. So that's the key in my mind. Don't start walking batters. Make him beat you. Throw it over the plate. He's in the rotation now. You know, it's going to be a little bit until uh, there's an open spot or until until somebody else is coming back and forcing that issue. So I think it's up to him to continue to to give them a chance to win. And I, I think it's an important start for him in that regard. But I don't know. I think he has that in him. I think that's a good matchup for him. But he's now got to go out and actually do it. The secret weapon is back. Get your T-shirt. No better time than right now. Natschatpodcast.square.site. Natschatpodcast.square.site. You tell us what you think when it comes to the looming MLB trade deadline. We're inside a week and a half of it. I mean, it's coming up soon. Next Friday, so not this coming Friday, but the following Friday, July 30th. What should the Nats thinking be? You tell us. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at Gmail. Com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Rogers, the tall lefty, delivers. And a swing and a line drive into center, a base hit. Harrison around third being waved home. The throw by Marte on the way, and it is up the line. Meanwhile, Robles heading for second. The throw by Alfaro to second is not in time. A single to center, a run batted in for Victor Robles. And with the throw offline and unable to be cut, Robles takes second on the throw to the plate. His 12th run batted into the year. It's the Nationals 1 and Miami nothing.